Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the most important news items of the past seven days. The most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is and just how quickly it disappears. I also know how much there is to know these days and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today, we'll cover the following news items. The leader of Al-Qaeda was killed. Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan and a few domestic items. Kansas abortion proposition fails, and the Inflation Reduction Act passes. We begin in Afghanistan, that far-off country from which, just about a year ago to the day, we executed a most perfunctory departure. You'll recall it was something of an E-Day fix, a fixed idea in the mind of President Biden, and consequently the administration of which he's the head, uh, to leave the country in which America had a military presence for the past two decades or so, just prior to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, that day on which, so many years ago, almost 3,000 American citizens were killed. So Ayman al-Zawahiri was basically the second in command in al-Qaeda up until the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden. Since that time, he's been the number one, the head honcho, the main buck. Well, it turns out that he was uh, lounging on his balcony the morning of Sunday, this Sunday past, uh, at about six o'clock a.m. It was at that time, without any notice, that he was struck dead by an American drone. Now, oddly enough, he was in the heart of downtown Kabul, uh, the wealthy part of the city, relatively speaking, in which formerly the diplomats were housed, and currently the uh, higher officials in the Taliban take their residence. Now, you might at this point be a little bit confused. You might be asking yourself, wait a second, weren't we assured that the Taliban, to whom we handed over the state of Afghanistan after our uh, ill-planned withdrawal last year, was no longer in the business of harboring terrorists? Was that not, in fact, part of the Doha Agreement? Doha being the capital of Qatar, in which the agreement was reached last year. Why? Yes, your memory 
isn't deceiving you on this occasion, at least. It turns out that uh, Zawahiri, uh, comfortable under the uh, graces and auspices of the new regime, moved back into Kabul earlier this year, believing that after our withdrawal from the country, he'd be safe. And he had good reason for believing so. And indeed, for a while, at least, he was correct. Now, I think it's worthwhile noting exactly where he was staying in Kabul. According to reports, he was actually in the home of, and I apologize if I mispronounce this name, Sir Sirajuddin Haqqani, the son of the founder of the Haqqani Network, a family famous, or should I say, infamous for its terrorist activities and extortion plots. According to media reports, Jalaluddin Haqqani, the father and founder of the network, had ties to the Taliban going back to the 1980s and the Soviet invasion. Now, of course, it was during that invasion that America first became entangled in that tumultuous, mountainous, unstable country so far afield. As it turns out, the issue of Jalaluddin Haqqani, his son Sirajuddin, was given the opportunity to write an editorial in the pages of none other than the New York Times, uh, in which he was graciously invited to contribute his ideas. Now, you'll recall a senator, a sitting senator from the state of Arkansas, Mr. Tom Cotton, was denied that same opportunity when, in 2020, during the summer riots, he wanted to expound upon the idea of sending into the cities that were no longer being protected by local authorities and state um, police officers, the National Guard, federal troops. Now, for having the audacity to suggest such an idea, the editor, actually, by whom this submission was advanced, uh, resigned. He's no longer with the most prominent newspaper in all America. So, it's important to know exactly who Zawahiri was and why he's important. Now, according to the FBI's database, the most wanted terrorist database, I should say, uh, Zawahiri, now formerly deceased, was an Egyptian-born physician, fluent apparently in Arabic and French, as most people are in northern Africa. Uh, he was, let's see here, uh, so his killing... Uh, was going to fetch a reward of up to $25 million. Now, that, I should say, that wasn't just for his killing. That was for information leading directly to the apprehension or conviction of Mr. Al-Zawahari. Uh, now, according to his curriculum vitae, he was a physician, as I said, founder also of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. According to the FBI database, this organization opposes or opposed the secular Egyptian government and seeks its overthrow through violent means. By what other means are there for these people constituting Islamic Jihad? In approximately 1998, 
the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, led by al-Zawahiri, merged with al-Qaeda. So there you have it, his union with Osama bin Laden began around that time. Now, Zawahiri had been indicted for his alleged role in the 1998 bombings of the United States embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya. So, quite a history behind him. And certainly a good thing that he's dead. A good thing, indeed, about which President Biden is rightly celebratory. Now, we should note that it's rare that this president and his administration have the opportunity to applaud themselves for their actions. But let's reconsider exactly how this came to be. Zawahiri never should have been living in Afghanistan, according at least to the Doha Agreement, of which I made mention just a little while ago. Now, let's just recount what exactly happened, uh, happened just last year. Very quickly to recount, on the eve of the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of uh, September 11th, it was President Biden's unwavering plan to withdraw from the country all remaining American forces. Now, it was with the assurance that the Taliban wouldn't, at least wouldn't very quickly reconstitute itself there and begin harboring terrorists as is its want. Before the dust had even settled, though, and before uh, America had made its inglorious evacuation from that country, we learned that, no, the terrorists were not to be prohibited from entering Kabul and Afghanistan more generally. Uh, you recall the name ISIS-K, the terrorist cell, the splinter cell, uh, responsible for the killing of 13 of our servicemen at one of the gates not to mention hundreds of other Afghans. It was with an aim to prevent further terrorist attacks that the Doha Agreement was uh, drawn up and consented to by both parties, Afghan and American. Now, as I said, Doha is the capital of Qatar in which the agreement was held. Its first clause guarantees to prevent the use of Afghan soil by any international terrorist groups or individuals against the security of the United States and its allies. Another clause, at the risk of boring you, uh, states uh, that Afghanistan reaffirms its continued commitment not to cooperate with or permit international terrorist groups or individuals to recruit, train, raise funds, uh, transit Afghanistan, or misuse its internationally recognized travel documents or conduct other support activities in Afghanistan. And finally, the United States reaffirms its readiness to continue to conduct military operations in Afghanistan with the consent of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan in order to disrupt and degrade efforts by Al-Qaeda, ISIS-K, and other international terrorist groups or, indiv or individuals to carry out attacks against the United States. So it is apparent that the Taliban, the de facto government of Afghanistan, infringed on its agreement signed in Doha. The question is, do we punish the Taliban for having committed this infringement? What are the repercussions of it having done so? 
I highly doubt that they will suffer any punitive damages from us. On balance, I think the Taliban are still on the winning side. <laughs> think about it. We left between 50 and 80 billion dollars worth of weapons in that land. We left behind a 300 million dollar Bagram Air Base from which we decided not to execute our departure. We left behind a very expensive embassy building. We unburdened it of our continued presence. We were able to somehow link Afghanistan closer to uh, the powers of China and Russia. And we were able to disgrace ourselves in the process. <laughs> so is this a victory for America? I think Indubitably, it is any time that we can rid the world of another terrorist of this sort and of his stature, it is something to be celebrated. Now, another question, is it a political victory uh, for the likes of Joe Biden? That's maybe in the short term it is, but uh, remember, he assured us that in Afghanistan, there would not be a reconstitution of terrorist cells, one of the one of the conditions of our departure was that this would no longer be a safe haven to the likes of Zawahiri and others. So, it's difficult to say if this is a political victory for him, um, but we may overlook that and celebrate the fact that the world is a safer place with Zawahiri gone. Next, we move on to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, third in line to the presidency, if God forbid, Joe Biden first and then Kamala Harris second, succumb to some ailment or twist of fate. She's the most senior member of the legislative branch, and she certainly appears to be every hour of her age. Well, she went earlier this week to Taiwan, capping off an Asian junket. She actually stopped in Japan as well. And she was joined uh, there with a few other congressmen. Now, it was uncertain whether or not she would actually go to Taiwan. She contracted COVID at one point, by which the entirety of the trip was delayed and then eventually was able to go after much political uncertainty. Now, the trip was originally planned earlier this summer, uh, and it was executed uh, just a week ago. Now, the question is, why did she go? Why now? Well, it was certainly contrary to Chinese desires. And why contrary? Well, China maintains, more fiercely now than ever, that Taiwan is not a sovereign country. It is an island under the exclusive proprietorship of the mainland, China. Now, to, mo to note, uh, just to paint for you the image of the disparity between the two populations, in China there are over one billion people in Taiwan, there are about 23 million. That's a rounding error when taken in consideration of the vast amount of people inhabiting that 
ancient land of China, mainland China, that is. Now, the official American position toward China is what's known, and Taiwan, its relationship to Taiwan is known as the One China Policy. It essentially maintains that there are there are two entities, but they're encompassed by the Chinese state, the mainland Chinese state. So since the time of Chiang Kai-shek, it's been a, quite an unusual arrangement and certainly one fraught with peril. Now, that peril seems to be increasing more and more. China has made it clear that it intends, probably within the next one to two years, to invade Taiwan, to repatriate it, so to speak, and to bind it ever closer to the mainland, where it thinks it belongs. So the Biden administration was understandably wary of Nancy Pelosi against its wishes visiting Taiwan and perhaps ruffling the feathers of the Jap I'm sorry, the Chinese apparatchiks and the Communist Chinese Party. But Pelosi could not be daunted, could not be stopped. Now, there's something commendable in this. As a representative of America, a quite visible representative of America, she should not be told by a foreign nation which country she may or which country she may not visit. That is debasing, it's degrading. We, as a world power, as the world power, have it within our right to grace any nation on this globe with our radiant presence. Yet, that having been said, one can't but question Pelosi's motivations. It's possible that she was attempting to rehabilitate her somewhat damaged domestic political image. Uh, might I remind you, just recently, her husband, Paul Pelosi, was pulled over for DUI when he crashed his Porsche into a uh, SUV, I believe, in California. Now, now, there's also the issue with her husband, Paul Pelosi, that he was investing in semiconductor chips with what seems to have been insider knowledge before a bill subsidizing the industry was passed. A little tendency, a little trick of the congressional elite in which he seems to have been engaging and continues to engage for quite a long time, amassing quite a large uh, portfolio and quite a lot of money. Now, less cynically, uh, Pelosi does represent California, in which many Taiwanese and Chinese people live, and she perhaps has always had an affinity for that uh, harried island nation. Now, China threatened hostile action against Pelosi, and this is something to which the executive branch sadly had no real response. Now, ultimately, nothing significant happened. China fired 11 missiles into the Taiwan Strait as a show of, oh, I don't know, outrage. But uh, earlier, when it was announced that Pelosi would be traveling, there were threats made that they might actually shoot down her plane. Now, commendably, Pelosi was undeterred, but it would have been uh, nice to have seen a stronger response from the executive branch, of which 
President Biden is the head. Biden, remember, had a call recently with Xi Jinping, the uh, premier, basically the autocrat of the Communist Chinese Party, uh, during which Xi warned Biden not to play with fire so as to avoid being burned as it pertains to the Taiwan issue. Now, Biden issued a tepid discouragement, I would say, of Pelosi's foreign adventure. Uh, now, she, of course, dismissed the warning, but the image of the two branches, the legislative and the executive, led by the same party, mind you, the Democratic Party, at odds is not a flattering one. Now, I think Pelosi should have consulted a little bit more with the executive branch to get their messaging straight and to get their plan in harmony as much as is possible. I think it would be better for America to present a unified message abroad, especially on a topic as sensitive as this. I think whether she intended to or not, uh, Pelosi put the executive branch in the position of almost echoing the Chinese, who was warning her not to go and threatening danger if she did. I think greater coordination is needed in the future. Now, it should also be noted that it is in the power of the legislative branch to proclaim war. The war-making power resides with it. The executive can carry out the war. Indeed, the president is the commander-in-chief, but he hasn't the ability to declare war. Now, Madison in his writings is very clear about this, and I would refer you to his <laughs> eloquent voice on this and many such matters regarding the separation of the three branches of our governmental structure. Now, the question then is, what are the geopolitical ramifications of this? Will China suddenly become more aggressive? Will it now move on Taiwan with greater alacrity? The iron, after all, seems to be at its hottest. Who's to say? It does seem as though China will make its move within the next one to two years. Uh, I think there's a general consensus on that matter, at least among those who have most closely studied the issue. Of course, if the legislative branch falls into the hands of Republicans in the autumn, their calculation might change. Indeed, they might expedite the movement to possibly preempt the possibility of a Republican president exceeding the role in 2024. If you thought we were in a state of economic discomfort right now, just imagine what would happen if China invades this small, stubborn, for all intents and purposes, sovereign little island. Mind you, about 90% of the world's semiconductors are produced in Taiwan. These semiconductors go into your laptops, your cell phones, your batteries, your electric vehicles, all the technological devices of which we make use every single day. Shipping supply lines, they would be completely unsettled. <laughs> the talk that we have of recession would seem like days of prosperity. <laughs> but 
we will cross that bridge once we come to it. For now, we'll touch upon a few domestic items that can't go unmentioned this episode. First, Kansas' anti-abortion proposition fails. Kansas, a mostly Republican state, had a ballot initiative, a uh, referendum, to move the issue of abortion from the court to the legislature. Now, it was essentially Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the Supreme Court, over which there was such a hoopla a few uh, months ago, in miniature. Now, the decision of Dobbs was that abortion basically wasn't an issue over which the court had the final say. It returned the question back to the states and their legislators, democratizing the process once again, giving it to the people by whom decisions of such weight and gravity should be made. Now, Kansas essentially wanted to do the same thing. It wanted to remove the issue from the court and put it into the legislature of Kansas, again, for the people to voice their opinions, assuming that they would be more conservatively inclined. Uh, now, oddly enough, and I think to most people's surprise, the proposition failed. It failed in dramatic fashion. It was a 60-40 failure, <laughs> quite unexpected among those who had high hopes for a resounding conservative response to the measure. Now, whether or not this is a harbinger of things to come, it's difficult to tell. It's, I think, too premature to be able to forecast exactly how each state will consider this issue. Some things to keep in mind, however, are that this was the first such proposition in the nation after the Dobbs decision, that a prodigious amount of money was poured into the state in order to defeat this referendum, that the referendum itself was somewhat slovenly written in a confused and unclear manner, and that a lot of people don't want to upset the status quo. There's something to be said about that inertia to which people become accustomed. So we'll see in the coming weeks and months and years how the issue of abortion is handled in the states, where, according to the Supreme Court, and according to the Constitution, so far as I understand it, it belongs. Now, also, and we'll end with this, the Inflation Reduction Act passed the Senate. Actually, it did so this evening. I'm recording on Sunday, the 7th of August. So now it will move to the House and then will likely be signed by the president, assuming it makes its way through the legislature uh, unscathed. Now, this bill, not to get too in the weeds, was passed by reconciliation, which is uh, applicable to budgetary items. It requires a simple majority vote, so typically you would need two-thirds. In this case, you simply need 51 out of 100 senators. And also, in this case, we have uh, Kamala Harris serving as vice president and also as president of the Senate. As expected, no Republicans in the Senate side on to the, uh, to the bill. 
the two Democrats around whom there were some questions were West Virginia's Joe Manchin, who agreed to it earlier this week, and Arizona's Kristen Sinema, who late this week also signed on to it. Uh, they probably did so because their local interests were served. Whether or not they will rue this decision, time will tell. But what's clear is that it's not particularly well served for the time. Mind you, we're seeing inflation rates of a historic nature. At 9.1%, we've not seen numbers quite like this since the Carter administration, through which many American families suffered, and of which many American families still have a memory. Also, we're in a recession. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth attest to this fact, no matter how sophistic the administration wants to be in declaring otherwise. So one has to think, how will a massive spending bill of this nature affect our current woeful economic state? For one, it plans to expand Obamacare. It plans to impose upon drug prices some controls which will inevitably hamper innovation and slow development in the industry, an industry of which we all have a much greater appreciation after this COVID pandemic. It also will allot prodigious amounts of money to climate change and subsidies that will surely distort the uh, energy market's priorities in capturing more fossil fuels of which we need to make immediate use. It also plans to impose new taxes to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars on some of our most profitable and prosperous companies. At a rate of 15%, it will burden these companies in a time of economic stagnation with ever more onerous costs. Now, these taxes, these costs will inevitably have downstream effects. Well, what will they do? They might inhibit a company from hiring more people. It might pass those taxes, those costs, down the line to the consumers, to you, to me, so that we can pay for them indirectly. Now, this is absolutely not what you need in a time of economic despair, which is exactly the place toward which we're heading, and ever more quickly with the passage of this bill. Now, aside from that, there will be more IRS agents, precisely what we need. There will be $80 billion in new funding for some 87,000 new IRS employees. Now, that includes more than $45 billion for tax enforcement. Now, does this sound like a bill that's averse to debt? Does it sound like a bill intent on assisting the situation, on pulling us out of these economic doldrums into which we've fallen. I'll leave it to you, dear listener, to decide. We end this episode, as always we do, with a quote. This one comes from P.G. Wodehouse, the English humorist, of whom I am so very fond. He said that 
It is a good rule in life never to apologize. The right sort of people do not want apologies, and the wrong sort take a mean advantage of them. Advice, I think, with which our political leaders are already quite intimately acquainted. And with that, I bid you farewell from Finneran's Wake. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Shout, tell you, shout.